0: Hey, everyone. How's it going? This is a real treat. I preach maybe, well, now it's once a year, guys. Actually, I guess technically it's twice, because I preach the first week of January. But here we go. <laughs> uh, my name is Carissa, and I am the executive pastor. And I usually give the announcements, so it's fun to have other people do that. I hope you receive from them as well. Um, but here we go. Pray for me, guys. <laughs> All right. The NFL, <laughs> NFL guys, one of the most prestigious organizations across the country, pitting top competitors against one another to showcase who is the most skilled, talented, and persuasive. In high school, a lot of my time was uh, spent around the NFL, dedicating hours every day to to learn about it, uh, crafting my skills. Um, It was my dream for a bit to become one of the top competitors in the NFL and to win competitions and tournaments, regionals, states, even nationals. I wanted to be one of the best the NFL had ever seen. You know, the NFL, the National Forensic League, which is also called the National Speech and Debate Association. Um, It was founded in 1925, and it was to help encourage uh, students foster communication, collaboration, critical thinking, and creative skills. That was a good one, huh? Um, (laughs) During my freshman year, I took a class called Oral Composition, a class that prepared students to compete with our speech and debate team. We learned that there are many different types of public address. There's original oratory, original advocacy, expository, impromptu, extemporaneous. There's different types of interpretations, like acting. There's dramatic, thematic, poetic, or poetry in duo. And then there's different kinds of debates. There's Lincoln Douglas, there's policy, there's Congress, and lots of other kinds of events. Um, I first tried my hand at expository, and this is a type of speech where you have visual aids, so imagine poster boards and a an easel, and uh, we would use those to supplement our speech. My first speech was on the history of ice cream. Um, it, was, it was really great, guys. I don't remember much from that speech, but I can tell you that uh, the first iteration of ice cream was back in the Roman Empire. Slaves would get blocks of ice, and they would put uh, milk and honey and fruit on it, and that was ice cream. I learned a lot about the rich history of ice cream and the the importance of Ben and Jerry's in the the, uh, popularization of ice cream. The speech honestly had no real-worldly value, uh, but it was fun. I also participated in policy debates, uh, an event in which two pairs of students are pitted against each other to debate over a current and real-world issue, um, being prepared to speak on the affirming and the negating side, depending on the round. The the topic that we debated on my freshman year was around the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. So like, really light topics. Um, This required research and real sources that would get cited during our back and forth debate, as well as extemporaneous responses to cross-examination after each argument. My favorite event, though, was Congress, which was held as a simulation of the United States legislative system. In each session, bills and resolutions would get proposed. They'd get debated on, and then we would vote to pass or not pass them. Uh, Most students here were representatives. They would be the ones who proposed, debated, and voted, but I found a different role in this event that I loved, the presiding officer. The presiding officer, or the PO, was responsible for upholding and enforcing the rules of engagement. I loved the formality required in this room and that I got to ensure that we operated um, with all the rules and regulations that were required from years and years of tradition. Not surprisingly, this is where I thrived and what I wanted to be known for within the NFL. I wanted to be known as the person who best enforced the rules in the country (laughs) within this event. Does this surprise anybody? I don't know. Until I discovered something even better. My freshman year of high school, I was invited to help run one of our speech and debate tournaments, and oh boy, I came alive. You're getting a sense into my like, high school nerdiness here. I received all the registrations from the schools, I, and the students, I organized every single round, I uh, assigned judges to each round, I even created a new system to do this more efficiently. Our school became known as um, one of the schools having the most organized and on-time tournaments, and I became known as one of the best tournament managers in the state as a student. This is something that, like, teachers do. I, I loved creating spaces for students to showcase their practice pieces and deliver persuasive arguments on so many different fronts. I was able to pave a path for hundreds and maybe thousands of students to develop their skills and advance to the highest levels of competition. For the rest of my high school tenure, this was my sweet spot. I participated in just enough tournaments to to remain active in the NFL and even got quite far in regional and state tournaments. Um, But my place was as the Tournament Manager. Um, Yeah, I found that I didn't need to be first place in any event that would actually be recognized and awarded with an actual prize. um, Because I found where I most thrived, that I could contribute to my learning and organization here, and ultimately create the way for others to excel at what they do. I found that there are many times in life where either by our own volition or because of societal pressures around, we're often pressing in to be in the number one spot. Growing up Asian American, I wasn't necessarily raised with the tiger parent pressure um, that many of you have heard about where I have to be the top of everything. My parents only ever wanted me to do my best. Somehow my best was never actually my best, but that's that aside. Um, So much of society pushes us to frame our stories with ourselves as the main character, showing that we are the center of the story, the heroes or heroines of the story, and that everything that happens around us is exactly that, around us. We are the centers of our own stories, and it's all about us. But what if that's not actually the way God designed it? What if winning first place is not part of God's storyline, and you're actually supposed to help create the paths for someone else to be first? This Advent, our theme is expecting a bigger picture, a bigger story. Josh started the series by talking about hope. Last week, Tina talked about Zechariah and how our doubt in God's plan doesn't stop it from happening. Today, we're going to look at John the Baptist and his humility. Before we dig into that, let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are our hope, our peace, our joy, and our love. Thank you, that you're, thank you for your birth and this season of expecting your coming, both the coming of your birth and your second coming. Thank you that you are the author of our stories and that the stories you are writing with us are bigger than we can even imagine. Would you open our ears and eyes to help us hear and see today how we fit into this bigger story? We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So humility, or rather to be humble, has a number of definitions in the dictionary. They can be not proud or arrogant, having a feeling of insignificance or inferiority or subservience, uh, being low in rank, importance, status, quality, or being courteous and respectful. According to the world, to be humble is to lower yourself, lower your worth, your value, to make yourself less than. I'd like to argue that being humble is more than this. To be humble is to have an accurate view of who you are, your value, and your worth, and actually living fully in the identity and calling that God has given you. There's a confidence that comes with humility, knowing that you don't have to puff yourself up to be more important or make yourself more known because you're operating exactly as God has designed. Let's start in the scripture just before Tina left off last week and read Luke 1, 76 through 80. Maybe. Maybe. All right, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel." This is the end of the song Zechariah sings when he gets his voice back and declares that the name of his son is John. This song prophesies identity, calling, and life purpose of John. These words are from the Lord that John is to be and do these things. A prophet of the Most High, prepare the way for the Lord, give knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of their sins, and to give light to those in darkness. These aren't wishful sentiments, but strong prophetic declarations into John's purpose and identity. It's with this framework and context that Zechariah and Elizabeth likely raised John, because they knew what the Lord had called him to do. I wonder how many of us know and understand our own prophetic identities, the things God determined for us before we were even born. In biblical times, and in many cultures today, names are very much the identity of a person and described who that person was, was or was to be. I've never had my own child, but I, um, so I've never named a human, but I've had many friends and family members who have. Um, many of you know that I have a nephew, and he's almost two years old. His name is Brendan G. Kwan Louie. There he is, this was when I was home in November at a gender reveal party. We're having a second nephew on the way. Um, so this is Brendan. When he was born, my brother wrote this about his name. Brendan is named after St. Brendan, the Celtic saint who heard God's call to sail to unknown lands in search of God's promise. This is the story of his immigrant grandparents searching for new life in America. This is the story of his parents who have sought after God's call, even in the most unlikely and risky places. The prayer of St. Brendan says, Help me to journey beyond the familiar and into the unknown. Give me the faith to leave old ways and break fresh ground with you. Christ of the mysteries, I trust you to be stronger than each storm within me. I will trust in the darkness and know that my times even now are in your hands. Tune my spirit to the music of heaven and somehow make my obedience count for you. Amen. We named him Ji Kwan. It is the Korean version of the Chinese name chosen by his, grand, by his Chinese grandparents and translated by his Korean grandparents. It means wisdom, authority. It is from the worship song found in Revelation 5:12, worshiping the land who was slain. A symbol that to the world looks like foolishness and weakness, but in the kingdom of God is wisdom and power. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. It's Revelation 5.12. My brother's prayer for my nephew is we pray he will recognize the radical invitation of Jesus in his life journey and that he will recognize true kingdom wisdom and authority joining in the worship course to the lamb that was slain. These are not hopeful thoughts as to who Brendan will become, but a prophetic declaration and prayer over who God has already created him to be. This is the context with which Brendan is being raised and the identity that is being formed within him. How many of you know your prophetic identity, the name God has given you and the context through which he has spoken to you? How many of you would love to discover what, God, what your God-given identity is? Maybe today you can ask God about your identity, the name he has given you, and the context in which he is calling you. We see John the Baptist living out his identity um, that his father foretold of him um, as we continue in the scripture. Let's read Luke 3, 3 through 14. And he went into all the regions around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire." And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall, we, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. Just as as was foretold in his father's song and in Isaiah, John the Baptist's ministry was around bringing people into rightness with God, preparing them for Jesus' coming by exhorting them to repent and receive forgiveness for their sins. John the Baptist is clear on his assignment and does not waver in it. He knows what he is called to do and doesn't seek a higher status or a different work. He understands that this is what the Lord has spoken over him long ago and that this is what he was built to do. Let's also take a pause at this scripture to note that God-given authority um, or God-given identity wasn't only reserved for the Jews. As John the Baptist calls crowds to repent, there are two other groups highlighted. The first of these is the tax collectors. And they say, what shall we do? Tax collectors were largely disliked by common folks because they extorted money from them. Um, And in fact, a lot of Jews naturally assumed that there wouldn't be a place for them in heaven or in God's kingdom uh, because they were seen as having betrayed Abraham by collecting taxes for the Romans. The second group of people mentioned are the soldiers. There are three possibilities for what kind of soldiers these could be. The first is that they could be Roman soldiers or legionnaires um, who would have been under the authority of the Roman governor. They would have traveled with the governor as he moved through the province. And these soldiers would have been Gentiles or Roman citizens uh, who were likely recruited from Greek-speaking provinces um, in the eastern half of the Roman Empire. The second possibility is that these were soldiers of Herod Antipas, the tetrarch of the District of Galilee in Judea, who were tasked with protecting and serving him. Um, They had an auxiliary role to support the the Roman legions. Many of these troops were recruited from Romanized cities um, and they were likely ethnic Jews and gentile mercenaries, um, but their cultural affiliation was pagan, just as their allegiance was to Roman interests. And the third possibility was that these soldiers belonged to the temple guard. Rome allowed the Jews to have um, their own soldiers, their own local military, to enforce uh, the laws at the Temple of Jerusalem. Um, These soldiers would have been entirely Jewish, and at the time of John the Baptist, would have been under the authority of Annas or Caiaphas, the high priest, and therefore affiliated with the Sadducees. So we see in this passage that um, the type of soldier is actually not identified. We don't know exactly which type of soldier this is or why Luke didn't specify, but we can infer that John's answer to their question would apply to any one of these three types. These groups of people asked John what they can do in response to his statement. In a culture where Jews and Gentiles were so separate, John could easily have told them that they would never be qualified to enter into the kingdom of God because they weren't Jewish. However, John didn't turn them away or tell them to quit their professions. He told them to repent by operating within their professions with integrity, uh, or to repent and turn away from what they were doing, um, and to operate in integrity. In other words, they too could be part of God's kingdom and be considered sons of Abraham if they had faith to live out their assignments, their callings, their professions, as God had designed them to do, and not as had been distorted. If they could do their jobs justly and repent from their corrupt ways of previously operating, they could enter in. Remarkably, their opportunity to enter into the kingdom was the same as everyone else's, no more and no less. I think it's easy to think that God has called some of us and not others. We may never articulate that, especially verbally, but cultural cultural norms or different biases may silently dictate our inclusion and exclusion of people in our lives and for the kingdom of God. Are there folks around us we have written off, whether unknowingly or intentionally, And disqualified from having a God-given identity and purpose? Are there people or professions we think God can't redeem and use for his plan? I invite you to bring that to the Lord today and repent for judging whether someone may or may not know or may or may not have an identity in Christ. Or perhaps you see yourself as one of those soldiers or tax collectors too far off for God to redeem and give an identity, a calling, or purpose to. Do you think who you are and what you've done is too far off from what God wants or would have designed? Bring that to the Lord today and ask him how he truly sees you because you're not too far away from him and you're not too far away from his plan that he can't redeem you. Each one of us has a God-given identity and he is so excited to reveal that to us. Let's continue on here with John 1, 19 through 28. Lots of scripture today. And this is the testimony of John When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophets? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Again, we see that John knew who he was and embraced his purpose. John knew his assignment on earth was to prepare the way for Jesus. He stuck to his calling and didn't try to go beyond what God had designated for him to do. Baptizing folks with water and knowing that the one who was coming was mightier. John the Baptist's ministry was successful. It drew a lot of people, and his ministry was also kind of suspicious. The religious leaders questioned who he was and what he was doing. People were hungry for a savior, for the Christ. And at any point, John could have claimed to be the Christ and or to save them. Plenty of people already thought and assumed that that was who he was. But he knew his calling was to be the one who prepared the way for he who was to come. Additionally, John didn't shy away from the gifting and call that God had on his life. We see that John was hugely successful in his ministry. He stepped into fullness, into the fullness of what God had laid before him with confidence and an assurance that God was with him and God had called him to this life. Perhaps part of why his ministry was so successful was because he didn't doubt what his purpose was. He knew with full confidence that God had called him to prepare the way, to call people to repentance, to bring people towards the salvation that Christ was bringing. He didn't question his call or his equipping because he knew what God had called him and designed him for. It's important to note here that being confident in your own identity and calling is not considered humility unless it's in comparison to Jesus and the larger story God is writing. To simply be excellent and the best is only that and can easily lead to pride and arrogance. It's only when we see ourselves in light of Jesus and what he was sent here to do and understand how our calling is actually in support of Jesus's call can we approach our lives in humility. Let's see how John the Baptist does this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has said, who Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John the Baptist, John the Baptist knows who he is. He knows what he's meant to do. Above that, and just as importantly, John knows who Jesus is. John knows why Jesus has been sent to earth. John understands his assignment in light of who Jesus is and why he was sent here. We too must know who we are, what we are called to do, and who Jesus is. The story we're living in is actually God's story, and we get to play a part in it. He is the savior of the world, and Jesus is the center of the story. It's easy to get caught up in our thoughts and opinions, thinking that we know more or that we know best, but we are actually submitting those to God. Um, Are we actually submitting those to God? Understanding that he has the final say on everything. The pride of thinking our particular role is central, of thinking we know more or best, or even thinking that society knows best about any number of topics, wrongly puts us at the center of what is actually God's story. This year, as many of you know, we engaged in a lot of listening, dialogue, and discernment around sex, gender, and sexuality. This has been a year where our church has worked hard to listen well to one another, engaging in some of the most personal and vulnerable conversations to have as a community. As I personally reflected on this year, one of the things that have come to mind often is my own frustration um, in feeling unable to clearly or well articulate my thoughts my beliefs, my reasoning. It wasn't that I didn't know what I thought. Um, I just didn't have the words for it, nor did I necessarily feel the release to share it in in certain settings. I've shared with many of you that this has been a year um, where I've grown a lot in my own leadership. As a child, I grew up in a very legalistic environment. Our parents and elders told us what was clearly right and clearly wrong. Everything was black and white, and we knew what was good and what was bad because our parents told us so. I honestly loved this because I knew what to expect and everyone was held to the same standard. It took many years for me to realize that this kind of thinking was not biblical or holy, it's purely legalism, with good intentions but still not the way that God works. As I grew older, I heard for the first time that what might be right for me may not be right for you and what might be right for you may not be right for me and the only ones who can know the answer to that are me and God. It's actually not my place to discern that for you. For the first time, I was challenged to ask God if something was okay for me instead of going by some imaginary rule book my parents or elders passed down to me. I began to understand what it meant to discern God's will and desires for myself, understanding that it wasn't for me to discern that what you were doing is right or wrong. I could only ask those questions of myself to God. Shaving off a legalistic and honestly prideful mindset has been a lifelong process and is something that I still need to do daily. It's a renewing of the mind that I submit to the Lord every day. Now, as a senior leader of this church community, I found myself at a loss. Part of my understanding of leadership is that we're supposed to lead people somewhere. In the heat of conversations happening in our church, was my role to lead people towards my own thoughts and opinions? Was it to lead people towards a more theological, conservative, and traditional interpretation of the Bible? Was my role to convince people that a more progressive view is the most loving way to go? Was it to find another way that would appease everyone? I honestly found myself at a loss for much of this year. I could listen to people talk all day long, and I did. But as a leader, shouldn't I be doing more? What became more and more apparent in the midst of this was coming up with a specific um, was that coming up with a specific answer wasn't the assignment God has for me. My personal role here isn't to convince people to think one way or the other, or even to, f- to tell this church to think one way or the other. Of course, I have my personal convictions, and if you were to ask, I'll like I'll share as God as God prompts. Um, but I realized my assignment here um, was to help our church with something it needs and will always need and it's to hear God's voice, to hear and understand what he is calling us to, to step forward in risky obedience. My role, whether just to our staff team or perhaps to the whole church, is to remind us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, to create space for us to engage with the Lord. If you were, again, to ask me a personal opinion about any number of things, I could tell you, but if if you were to ask me to help lead this church, which is my assignment for this season, my commitment to you is that I will help turn your gaze to the Lord, to listen to him speak and step forward as a community in obedience to what he's saying. You see, I think it's easy for us to assume that our opinion or our thought is the right one or the supreme one for everyone, especially when God already told me that that's true. But maybe we're right, right? But maybe we're wrong. The pride we carry when we say that this is the absolute right answer and everyone must follow our opinion is an arrogance that the Lord doesn't call anyone to. Similarly, to assume that our personal calling is of utmost importance and that we are central because of the big calling God has put on our lives denies Jesus his rightful place. Ultimately, our witness is to each other and to those around us. Um, And to those around us is not about convincing people to our way of thinking or our own importance. It's about drawing people closer to God so they can grow in their own relationship with him. God is the one who will speak and bring clarity and breakthrough. Our only role is to bring people to the feet of Jesus. Can we be humble enough to realize who God has truly called us to be? Can we be humble enough to understand our assignment in the context of who Jesus is and what he was sent here to do? Are we able to step confidently into what God has called us to do, trusting and knowing that Jesus is at the center of the story and will accomplish accomplish all things John the Baptist's humility was in knowing his God-given identity and knowing and confidently living out his God-given purpose in the context of the bigger story of what God was doing here on earth, in understanding that we have the privilege of being part of this big, beautiful story that God is writing and that Jesus is the center of this story. As we close today, I'd like to leave you with a few questions and invitations to consider. First, do you know your God-given identity? Who are you called to be? And what are you called to do? What is your role in this grand scheme of life? If you're not sure, I invite you to receive prayer today and ask the Lord to begin revealing that to you. Second, how do you feel when you think about your calling or purpose? Does it intimidate you? Does it make you feel like the most important person? What does it look like in light of the bigger story of what God is doing in this world? I invite you to allow the Lord to minister to you as you consider what he's called you to do, that you can approach it with humility and confidence, that he has equipped you perfectly for what he has called you to do. To do. And finally, who is at the center of the story you're in? Are you the main character, the hero or the heroine? Who is Jesus Christ to you? Is he a supporting character in your story or is he the center of the story? If you're realizing that you've been the center of your story for a long time, or even a little bit of time, I invite you to meet with the prayer minister today to repent of that and invite Jesus to be the center of your story. Let me pray for us, and then Todd will come up with some additional words and invitations. Jesus, thank you that you have given every single one of us an identity and calling in you. Thank you that not one of us is disqualified from being a part of the bigger story you are writing and that we each get to play a part. Thank you that you have equipped each of us with everything we need to fully and confidently live out the identities and callings you've placed in our lives. Thank you that you are the center of the story and that it's all about you. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, to understand that in everything we do, we can point to you. May you be glorified in everything we are, everything we say, in everything we do. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.